0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen only mode. Later we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Well, thank you very much, Stephanie, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. This is the 10th annual Cancer Survivorship Series, Living With, Through, and Beyond Cancer. And the topic of today's program, which is such an important topic for all of you, is using mind-body techniques to cope with the stress of survivorship. Now, this is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care, the National Cancer Institute, Live Strong, American Cancer Society, Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. It's a very special program that we offer. It's a four-part series, and this is part one. And I want to tell all of you that we have so many of you on the call today, and it's really, um, really, the uh, response to this program has been enormous, actually. Um, we have on the call today over thirty. Actually, 3,463 people on this call today. So there's many of you on this call today. And you come from all over the United States, and we have international participants from Canada, China, Guam, India, Jamaica, Kuwait, Malaysia, Portugal, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Trinidad, Tobago, Venezuela, and the Virgin Islands. So you come from all over the world, and it's a really credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. I would like to turn your attention for a moment to all the materials that you received from Cancer Care. In those materials, is information about our speakers and the topics they'll be addressing. There also is information about all the different collaborating organizations I've mentioned as resources for all of you, and wonderful resources. And there is, of course, information about wonderful uh, fact sheets that you can access and informational pieces that you can get, the Facing Ford series from the National Cancer Institute and many of the other materials that are there. And there is an evaluation form we would ask you to all take a moment at the end of the program today and complete that evaluation form. Indeed, the whole program that we've planned this year was based on your evaluations and recommendations from last year. So we take your recommendations very seriously. So um, please do um, complete those um, evaluation forms and send those back to us. Now, um, I would like to acknowledge that this program is made possible by support from the National Cancer Institute and Live Strong, and we really want to thank them for their support of our program today. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce my esteemed colleague and co-moderator, Dr. Carly Perry. Dr. Perry is Program Director, Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health. And Dr. Perry is going to say some words of welcome, as well as put this program in the context of survivorship. Dr. Perry? Thank you, Carolyn. Let me add my
2: welcome to our invited speakers and to the many listeners who have joined us for today's workshop. I'm honored to co-host this 10th annual cancer survivorship teleconference series focusing on using mind-body techniques to cope with stress of cancer survivorship. On behalf of the National Cancer Institute, represented by my office, the Office of Cancer Survivorship, and by the Office of Communications and Education, we are pleased to serve once again as an organizational partner and co-funder of this program. We are also delighted to celebrate the decennial year of this survivorship series. The number of participants in this series and the diversity of countries you represent have grown across the years, with the number of participants tripling in recent years. While we're gratified by this response, we also recognize that the popularity of this series is a testament to the fact that for many cancer survivors, even though cancer treatment is over, the cancer experience is not. There is now a growing body of scientific research documenting the effects of mind-body techniques such as yoga. Tai Chi, and Meditation on Physical and Mental Health. Today's presentation focuses on using mind-body techniques to cope with the stress of cancer survivorship. We have three outstanding national experts to talk about how survivors can take care of themselves, both physically and emotionally, through the use of mind-body approaches. Again, I'm delighted to be co-hosting this workshop with my colleague, Dr. Carolyn Messner, and I'll now turn the program over to her.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Perry, and thank you so much for your all of the work that you've done on, the, on this uh, whole series and also for the support of the National Cancer Institute in making this, this whole series possible for so many years. Thank you. We have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to start by introducing our first speaker, uh, Richard Dickens. Mr. Dickens is a supervisor um, at Cancer Care, clinical supervisor, mind-body project coordinator at Cancer Care, and he's going to provide the survivor's perspective. It's my pleasure to turn the program over to Mr. Dickens.
3: Thank you, Carolyn. I'd like to begin with the term, the new normal, one of the most common phrases in cancer survivorship. I use it often myself. But it wasn't until my second bout with non-Hodgkin lymphoma that I began to fully explore that word and how it applied to me. The truth is every day we wake up a different person than we were when we went to bed. By that I mean our mind and body is constantly evolving, changing, but on a daily basis it is very subtle and we don't feel that change much. New ideas, new challenges, new food is creating a new normal all the time. But there are those times in our life especially when we hear the words, you have cancer, that we know when we do wake up from this, we will never be the same as before. For me, survivorship started the minute I was diagnosed, shock at first, followed by a healthy dose of denial, then some bargaining with God, all the while going through testament treatment and lots and lots of questions. During this period of poking and prodding, radiation and chemo, changes in appearance and abilities, every day seemed like a new normal, but no fun. For most of us, the treatment stops, the dust settles, and we begin to assess how we've changed, not always yet who we've become. For me, the new normal started when I heard the words, you have cancer, at the age of 37. We knew it was a blood cancer, but it took several weeks, more tests, a couple of pathologists and doctors at several New York City hospitals to finally conclude what type of blood cancer I had and what treatment options were available, a discussion I could never get consensus on. It was a treatable but incurable type of lymphoma. At 37, those aren't encouraging words, treatable but not curable, especially when followed by you'll get shorter and shorter remissions. As a young adult, the thought of a chronic debilitating disease was not in my game plan. During this initial phase of diagnosis and first experience with treatment, there is no subtlety between the person who goes to bed at night and the one who wakes up. The amount of information that goes through our minds and drugs that go through our bodies can make it feel like a roller coaster, a common metaphor in cancer. Never quite sure whether this day you're going up the hill or once again on your way down screaming. I got through my first experience of cancer, reevaluated my life plans, and a year later entered graduate school to become an oncology social worker, hoping this first remission would get me through school. But life doesn't always work out the way we plan, and my first recurrence came in the middle of graduate school stressors. The new normal was relentless, to the point that there were many days I'd wake up without a clue as to who I was, and perhaps a saving grace, many of those days I no longer cared. It was about this time that I realized if my life was going to be a perpetual amusement park of one roller coaster after another, I would need to learn how to laugh as loud as I can. And while not enjoying the ride, at least relaxing into the perpetual state of mystery. An allogeneic bone marrow transplant followed thanks to my big sister, Kathy, who was a perfect match. She gave me the gift of her stem cells along with her time and sacrifice, but equally important, she gave me the gift of her spirit. The truth is I had many big-spirited family members, friends, and church members who supported me with prayer, filled my hospital and chemo rooms with laughter, drummed over me, meditated with me, guided me on waking imagery exercises, and every day along the way welcomed this new normal into their lives. I went into this cancer journey with many mind-body, and I include spirit techniques to help me through it. I learned transcendental meditation in the early 70s, which evolved along the way for me into what's called mindfulness meditation. I had a lifetime of religious practice that gave me many contemplative tools to rely on with 40 days in isolation during the transplant time for for internal contemplation was always present. The technique that most helped was silence, not easy in a hospital even in isolation and prayer. A lifetime as an athlete, especially long-distance runner, grounded me in breath, the most profound and simplest of mind-body-spirit techniques, and an active imagination were not terrorizing me with what-ifs could be marshaled into mental daydreams that balance me with what can be. I'd be lying if I said these techniques worked every day to help transition me into that day's new normal." There was one day coming off a round of heavy chemo and prednisone that I looked into my bathroom mirror and wrote in my journal, I want to talk about insanity. There was nothing normal about that day's new normal. More than a decade later, after I recovered and became an oncology social worker, After doctors began to call me cured, after the daily new normal became subtle once again, I began to hear the stories of how all those people who loved and cared for me were on their own roller coaster as a result of my cancer. And I began to find out the many mind, body, spirit techniques they used to get them through the periods of worry, uncertainty, and change. Today is another new normal, as will be tomorrow and hopefully many more to follow. I'm a lot older than 37. I've been challenged by a number of new crises that made me uncertain of who I was from day to day. Aging is a strange, sometimes painfully fun, wild roller coaster. But with hope, with techniques to quiet the mind and provide moments of peace, with a childlike wonder at the mystery of life, we can adapt to whatever new normal comes our way. I know because I get to observe, as an oncology social worker, the resiliency of the human spirit every day as my clients confront terrible situations all the time, finding their own way into their own new normal. I look forward to hearing our speakers and wish each of you great faith, however you define that, a wealth of hope and mind-body-spirit practices to help you confront the inevitable challenges on your journey. Sometimes the most important change is to realize how strong you are, To live fully will always bring new challenges, and with challenge there will always be a transformation into another new normal. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Rick. That was really really
1: just so um, inspiring to everybody and so poignant. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your story with everyone and really helping everyone understand a bit more about how they can apply that to their own coping. So thank you so much. Um, And our next speaker uh, is Dr. Lorenzo Cohen. And Dr. Cohen is Professor and Director Integrative Medicine Program, Departments of General Oncology and Behavioral Science, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Cohen is going to address the definition of stress and identify the things that cause stress for you, stressors. He will also talk about ways to recognize the common symptoms of stress and understand the impact of stress on your sense of well-being and the importance of coping with stress. It's my pleasure to turn the program over to Dr. Cohen.
4: Thank you, Carolyn. It's, it's a pleasure to be with the group, and, and I think it is uh, such an important topic to be addressing, uh, I believe, for our population as a whole, uh, and in particular people who are uh, facing this, this life-threatening, challenging illness that we call cancer. When we talk about mind-body practices, it is very important to start with the definition um, in terms of what we are talking about when we use this term, stress. Everyone believes they have a basic understanding of what stress is and, and we all have stress in our lives to one degree or another. Um, What's important, however, to differentiate and uh, it was wonderful to hear uh, Mr. Dickens use this appropriate term that we call stressor. Um, Stressors are the actual events that we experience that are usually represented by something that is is challenging, something that that may represent a loss to the individual, something that often will also represent harm to an individual, and those are uh, the events that you experience. Now. How we respond to that event, how we process that event in our mind, um, and how we cope with that event is this more complex, uh, dynamic thing that we call stress. Really, the interaction between a person and uh, his or her life, his or her environment. Um, And so two different Stressors one one stressor experienced by two different people could result in very different uh, manifestation of what we call stress and with that said, uh, it's also important to note that the acute stress that somebody would experience in the face of a stressor is very adaptive and evolutionarily it was very important to have what we call a a stress response uh, which is often called a fight-or-flight response when you are in a situation of danger or potential harm and it allows you to actually mobilize all your resources to get yourself into a safer situation. Now the problem is is when that stressor becomes chronic and then we start experiencing the uh, ill effects that can happen from chronic stress uh, where, where there's uh, a long-term relationship problems, you have depression, uh, end up having chronic sleep disruption, uh, aspects of loneliness setting in, etc. Um, And and there's really now been, at least in the last half century, if not for about a century, of, of very good research documenting the negative health consequences of the experience of chronic stress. A lot of this has been studied Uh, in in more observational uh, models because, of course, within uh, human research we can't ethically uh, subject people to stress in a a standard experimental fashion. Uh, But even in some of these observational studies, we see that individuals who are experiencing more chronic stress, for example, are more susceptible to the common cold people who are experiencing chronic stress compared to uh, control population, their wounds don't heal as fast. Um, and so the, the stress response from a biological perspective has now become uh, extremely well understood. Um, and again, in an acute fashion, this is very adaptive where you have an increase in heart rate. Uh, this increase in heart rate will, of course, increase blood pressure. You'll have shallower, uh, more rapid breathing. Again, this is all to mobilize you to, to respond to, um, historically, danger. Uh, now, of course, if if you're sitting at a desk, if you're uh, struggling with, with the diagnosis of a life-threatening illness, that, that physiological mobilization is actually not uh, adaptive. Um, and so some of course of, of the triggers of, of stress has to do with with the physiological uh, in terms of, of paying attention to respiration, paying attention to uh, heart rate. Um, most importantly, however, is is really looking at uh, how you are interacting with your environment and ensuring that uh, you're engaging all the resources possible to help cope with uh, the stressor that you're experiencing. Um, and the reason that it's so important to effectively cope with these different uh, stressors and the way you are responding to them is again because of this very well-known deleterious uh, physiological effect that stress can have in our lives. Now where where things can get a bit controversial in the area of, of stress and cancer, um, is in the area of stress being an etiological factor, meaning that stress actually contributing to uh, the risk of somebody getting cancer in the first place. And many individuals are able to identify uh, a period of intense stress in their life prior to their diagnosis and look to that as uh, a type of explanatory model for why me? Um, when you look at the research, however, there is not tremendous support to say that stress can directly lead to cancer. However, there's much more evidence to suggest that stress after a diagnosis of cancer, cancer can be deleterious in terms of um, adapting to the disease, influencing length of survival, influencing aspects of, of quality of life. And where we see this uh, documented is really in looking at groups of individuals and, and, and measuring from them things like depression and anxiety. Uh, and in many studies, uh, one after another, showing that the patients uh, who are depressed uh, don't do as well. Patients who are highly anxious, anxious don't do as well. And a lot of uh, the medical community will say, "Well, of course, somebody's going to be depressed at different times." And this, of course, is understandable and. And needs to be seen as as part of the adaptive process as um, as Rick was saying it's it's this new normal uh, and that's something that somebody goes through but that doesn't mean that there aren't many things that are available to help somebody uh, manage aspects of of depression, anxiety, and mood disorders and even though it's a normal reaction. It's a reaction that, if it becomes chronic, uh, needs to be managed. And where the most definitive research actually exists in this area is when we start to look at uh, animal models, very well-controlled studies, where you can subject um, animals to chronic stress And you can subject them actually to chronic stress that is at a a psychological level. And the results of these studies are quite telling that the uh, effects of psychological stress can literally get right into the tumor microenvironment and wreak havoc. It really sets up, within these animal studies, a, uh, a model showing that Chronic stress will actually exacerbate progression of disease. And that if left unchecked, these animals do very poorly uh, compared to animals not stressed or compared to animals, for example, who are given a beta blocker which blocks the effects of a stress hormone, uh, specifically norepinephrine. So it's really important to try and engage in different types of uh, interventions to manage stress. Population studies have actually shown that uh, chronic stress can literally get right into the nucleus of every cell in your body. And where this is most apparent is um, when you measure something called telomeres. And this may sound a little complicated, but I'll try and uh, simplify it in saying that everyone is probably familiar with chromosomes. And, of course, chromosomes are in the nucleus of every cell in our body. And on the end of our chromosomes are uh, something called telomeres. And the telomeres actually keep your uh, chromosomes healthy. And as we age, t- telomeres shorten, this is just a, one of the aspects of the aging process. When your telomeres get too short and the cells are continuing to uh, replicate, there can be uh, abnormalities and mutations forming uh, and what's called chromosomal instability. Now. Our body has a lot of things in place to, to be able to either kill that mutated cell or if it, uh, it, it undergoes spontaneous cell death, something called apoptosis. Now what's been well documented is that chronic stress will shorten our telomeres. In other words, chronic stress speeds along the aging process. And so, again, this is something that that I believe is particularly relevant for people experiencing uh, a a life-threatening illness like cancer. But everyone in our society really needs to start engaging in different interventions to help combat the chronic stress that we all experience. And these types of programs can be... Uh, what one could call very conventional in nature, uh, working with a psychotherapist, working with a psychologist uh, in the area of cognitive behavioral therapy that has been shown to be helpful. Uh, and I won't go into too many of the details of, of the outcomes. Uh, this can also be done in, in group or an in individual. Uh, as As we heard from Mr. Dickens, it can also be... Uh, turning to what people are calling more in the area of complementary medicine, things like yoga or tai chi, meditation, uh, expressive writing, support groups. Uh, there's many different things that individuals can engage in to to help manage some of the chronic stress in, in one's life, help dampen the stress hormones that end up flooding the body and really set you up for uh, in, in improving outcomes. We have a lot of ongoing research in, in this area, in particular at MD Anderson, focusing on things like meditation to help with chemo brain, chemo fog, yoga programs incorporated into the radiation treatment plan to help speed along recovery and decrease some of the side effects of these treatments. And the key is to find something that you will do every day. and and engage in it as if it's a prescription written by the doctor, because in fact it is going to help uh, improve your outcomes, improve your quality of life on a daily basis. So with that, I will uh, pass it back to uh, Carolyn and look forward to some questions.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Cohen. That was really, really outstanding and such a a very, really thoughtful presentation on really um, stress. And I think you brought in lots of new areas for people to think about. So it was very, very informative. And um, I'm going to ask Dr. Lorenzo Cohen to say a few more words about yoga and meditation
4: yoga uh, specifically for breast cancer patients into the radiation treatment plan. And what we saw in that study were we were comparing patients in a yoga group to patients who just underwent usual care, uh, the standard care. And the patients who were participating in the yoga program reported improved physical functioning uh, throughout radiation and uh, even, even one in three months after the program was over. But very importantly, a measure of uh, benefit finding, ability to find meaning in the illness experience. And we see from now a lot of research that individuals who are able to somehow find meaning in this illness experience, sort of see the the silver lining, uh, tend to do much better. Um, and and we really uh, heard this from from Mr. Dickens this this ability to uh, to move on and uh, and and create this new normal um, and and to, to create an enriched life where you're engaging as much and as actively as possible uh, in, in the world that we live in. Um, and, and aspects of, of yoga uh, incorporate not only physical movements and, and relaxation techniques like breathing exercises and meditation, but also, very importantly, a connection with one's network. And I believe this is one of the most uh, underappreciated areas. Uh, yet, that is critically important: is this feeling of connection uh, with with one's network, um, and and really the uh, the healing benefit that can come from that. Um, and I believe that a lot of these mind-body techniques uh have that as as a basis. Really getting in touch with oneself which will ultimately allow you to become more connected with others, which is extremely healing in nature.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And actually now setting the tone for Dr. Um, David Spiegel. Our next speaker, Dr. Spiegel, is the Jack Lulu and Sam Wilson Professor in the School of Medicine, Associate Chair, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Stanford University School of Medicine. Now, Dr. Spiegel is going to discuss really using mind-body techniques to cope with stress um, to focus on specific stressors versus feeling generally overwhelmed. And also, he's going to talk about stress management tips and the nuts and bolts of that. So I'm going to turn this program over to Dr. Spiegel.
5: Well, I I was uh, delighted to hear the talks by uh, Rick Dickens and Dr. Cohen um, telling us how uh, life with cancer is a roller coaster ride and how there can be some wear and tear on that ride. And one thing about the roller coaster metaphor that I think helps us understand stress is that life always has its ups and downs. It has its wakeful periods and its sleepy periods. And, in fact, the way we handle stress uh, is to go through these shifts in mental state. Um, it will be no news to anybody on this call that the body affects the mind. Everybody on this call has had their minds affected by problems in their body, by the treatments that they're undergoing, um, by the physical signs of anxiety when they think about cancer. Um, but way, what may be better news is that the mind really does control the body. Now often, unfortunately, that's in the wrong direction. So. What often happens when you get anxious about a situation that worries you is um, that your body reacts to it. So your, your muscles get tense, you start to sweat, your heart rate goes up, and then you notice that that's happening, and um, you're, you start to feel even worse. And then your body says, now she's really anxious, and it's like a snowball rolling downhill. Um, one feeds the other. But in fact, there are very good techniques, very old techniques that have been used for a long time to help us better control how our bodies are feeling. Um, there are There's a, one way to remember this kind of approach to stress is the acronym FACES, F-A-C-E-S. So the first F is to face rather than flee what it is that's making you worried because you can change the way you and your body react to it. The second is alter your perception of what's going on, and I'll show you some examples of that. The third, the C is to cope actively. Find something you can do about any of the stressors you're dealing with. The fourth, the E is express emotion, and the S is social support. So let's talk about facing rather than fleeing. My goal in helping cancer patients deal with cancer is to convert anxiety into fear and depression into sadness. If you just sink into misery, there's not much you can do about it. But if you figure it out, what is triggering the anxiety you feel? or the sadness you feel, you can begin to do something about it. So it is not a bad thing, it's a good thing to recognize that you will have bad moments thinking about cancer and what it means to you, your body, and your family. But facing that directly can actually help you figure out how to cope with it. And one of the ways that we do that um, is by um, changing our perception of what it is that we're, we're dealing with. So, techniques, uh, one that I've used for many decades, are hypnosis, uh, which is the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy, which involves highly focused attention, coupled with restricting your view of your awareness of your environment. It's like the feeling you may have when you're in a good movie. You enter the imagined world and forget that you're watching a movie. So you're really changing your internal reality when you get engaged with a movie. And that's a skill that many of us have but, frankly, don't make good enough use of. So I'll ask you now to do a little thought experiment. And uh, I'm not not hypnotizing all 3,400 people on the phone, but just try this experiment and see which of the two conditions feels better to you. The first, I want you to just close your eyes and tell yourself, relax. And see how that feels. And now leave your eyes closed and tell yourself, float. Now, I want you to think about which of those two conditions, you can open your eyes now, you felt better. And I'm hoping that most of you will say it's the second condition because to tell yourself to relax is a cognitive evaluative phrase. It's what the doctor said to you before he gave you the shot. Um, When people tell me to relax, I get nervous. Uh, Whereas floating is a physical metaphor that your body can affiliate with. We can all think of a time when we were in a bath or a lake or a hot tub or just floating uh, somewhere and feeling more comfortable. So if we learn to use physical images with ourselves to help our bodies um, affiliate with situations that can bring us comfort, we can be thinking about something that makes us anxious but make our bodies more comfortable. And one particular way that's important for cancer patients involves pain control because uh, we know that the strain in pain lies mainly in the brain, that most of the time the amount of pain we feel has more to do with how we're reacting to it uh, than how intense the physical signal is. Many cancer patients, every time they get a new acre of pain, they think, oh my God, it's a metastasis, the cancer is getting worse, and that'll make the pain worse. So if instead you can imagine that the part of your body that hurts is either in a warm bath or surrounded by ice, whatever actually makes you feel better, you can literally change the amount of discomfort that pain causes you. And we and others have done magnetic resonance imaging studies of the brain that show that you actually turn down the signal in parts of the brain that process pain. So you don't just react to pain differently, you actually feel less pain. So we have much more ability to control our physical level of tension and the amount of discomfort in our bodies than we usually give ourselves credit for. There'll be times when you'll feel bad, but there can be times when you can really manage it in a way that makes you feel more comfortable while you're dealing with the problems. Now that gets to the next, to the C, coping actively. It's important that you focus on specific stressors, not just feeling miserable. Um, Because if you just feel overwhelmed, you add to your sense of helplessness and you don't get anywhere. On the other hand, if you say, well, you know, the worst part of this situation, so one typical example in dealing with stress is waiting for the results of a scan. And many of my patients tell me that that's worse than actually getting the results, even if it's bad news. And the reason is that you don't know what you'll do. You feel helpless. So I advise people to say, okay, if I'm waiting for the results of this next test, what am I going to do if it turns out one way, and what am I going to do if it turns out the other? So if it's good news, I'll go out and get drunk and have a good time. If it's bad news, here's the next thing I'm going to ask my doctor to do, and here's how we're going to make decisions about the next steps in treatment. So you become more active in dealing with the stress. Also, learn to think in more or less terms, not all or none. We've all had many good and bad things happen in life, and cancer can be one among a number of them. If you think, I've got cancer, my life is over, there's nothing you can do. But you all know, being on this call, that your life isn't over. And that if you can see problems as bigger or smaller, but not absolute, uh, they will, in fact, be less overwhelming and you can find some aspect of the stressor you can do something about. This can often involve just closing your eyes and picturing on an imaginary screen the specific problem you're facing while you keep your body comfortable and then let your mind open itself up to brainstorming what you can do about that and this is some of the techniques that are often used in mindfulness-based stress reduction that Dr. Cohen was talking about where you just become an observer to your own physical experience and thoughts rather than struggling with them, just see them, see how they evolve and then you can feel your way toward deciding what to do about them. The fourth principle is expressing emotion, the E in the word faces. When you do things like this, you will have strong feelings, and trying to put the lid on your feelings uh, is not helpful. There's nothing wrong with feeling fearful, angry, or sad from time to time. The real idea about good stress management is that there's variation in your experience. If you can feel really sad at one moment, you can feel really happy at another. We talk about tears of joy. So it's okay to express your anger, fear, and sadness. It actually brings you closer to the people around you and enlists them in helping you deal with the problems. And we found in our studies that to the extent that cancer patients are more open about their feelings they actually become less overall anxious and depressed. It helps them feel better in the long run if you have moments of anger, fear, and sadness. And the final thing is to seek social support, that we are not uh, just splendid individuals. Uh, We live in a social environment, and our friends and family and caretakers can help us cope with these stressors better. So become a good executive in deciding who can help you do what and make your cancer a community problem, not just a personal one. So we find that patients who can mobilize and master their own ability to control how their body is reacting, can think through problems carefully, uh, can manage stress much better. Um, And um, Shakespeare probably said it best, he said, uh, give sorrow words the grief that does not speak, whispers the offer heart and bids it break. So when you can give vent to the feelings that are bothering you, when you can manage the relationship between your mind and your body and take more control of it, you'll find that you'll be dealing with the same stressors, but you'll be dealing with them better.
1: Well, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Siegel. That was a wonderful presentation. And you also... Took all of us. I think this is probably the largest uh, call where everyone has had this experience of um, kind of a um, uh, where you gave us this exercise. We all did this together. So thank you for leading us in that and, and having people experience um, what it's like um, to have to have, an, to have an exercise that they can do to take away some of their stress. Um, so. Um, and for all the other information you provided. Thank you. And now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, Stephanie to bring all of our speakers on board, and actually um, we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. And I just want to say up front, if we don't get to your question, you can always call us at Cancer Care at 1-800-813-HOPE, and we're happy to take your questions. And I'll repeat that again at the conclusion of the call as well. Uh, Stephanie, could you explain to everyone how to queue up for questions?
0: Thank you ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Our first question comes from Emil S. Your line is open.
3: Hi. Uh,
4: since my cancer diagnosis of three and a half years ago, I changed my entire life probably for the better. I exercise and walk now every day. I didn't do that. I lost 65 pounds. I eat better uh, and I get more sleep. I've been handling the the stress myself, uh, but the problem is the stress of friendships and relationships. Um, other people have problems dealing with my cancer. It, became, it becomes a stressful situation, and I don't know how to deal with something like that, how to deal with other people dealing with my cancer. And that becomes well, a
3: stressful situation.
1: Well, thank you, Emil. That's an excellent question. And actually, um, I'm going to ask our speakers if they would address it. I'm going to ask, um, actually, if Dr. Uh, Cohen would address that um, to start.
4: Well, I think... I think that um, it's it's clear that uh, cancer doesn't just affect the individual uh, with the disease, but as you described, cancer really is uh, impacting the family, the environment, the friends, um, and and you know in particular with family, it's really important that people understand that they, as as the family member, are. are Critical as a support, but at the same time, they also uh, need to acknowledge and and recognize the stressors uh, and the stress that they're going to be experiencing, uh, and make sure that they also take care of themselves. Um, and the and the same is true, in particular, with close friends, uh, where it becomes somewhat problematic. Is is the more peripheral individuals in one's life, uh, yet ones that are very important, work colleagues uh, and the like, because uh, people don't always know how to appropriately respond uh, to individuals who are experiencing a life-threatening illness. And I believe cancer is very different than any other disease in our society, uh, and and there's a lot of reasons for that, some of them historical in nature. And so, you know, unfortunately, there isn't a uh, an easy answer to this, uh, except to have very open communication, um, and and at the end of the day, to be true to oneself.
1: Emil, actually, um, you know, thank you for the question. Um, I'm going to have other speakers address it as well. But we actually are doing a program on June 19th in the series, specifically for the other members, the other people in in your in the world, the caregivers, friends, family, to participate in, so you can keep that in mind as well. Um, Rick, did you want to comment on this as well?
3: Yes, Emil, thank you very much. Um, That is a very important thing, and for me it was a very insightful thing, going through two bouts of cancer over three years, three and a half, four years. Um, I didn't find out sometimes, and ironically even now, many, many years post, I am still hearing how my cancer diagnosis affected people. Sometimes it appeared to me in the midst of my own cancer that it was a disappointment or that I had lost a support. Um, And not all of us sometimes do have that uh, good fortune of many, many years later having heard from people who do love and care about us, Um, as Dr. Cohen said, colleagues or um, also people in our family and friends But cancer does affect many different people, and there's a variety of reasons that people do respond sometimes in a way that isn't most helpful for us. But it was very insightful for me and um, a very humanistic and touching um, uh, sharing years later, as people would say, how, um, how it scared them, how it overwhelmed them, how they didn't know how to handle it, And um, sometimes they themselves felt some guilt or sorrow in not being there as much for me. Um, And for the most part, all of those relationships really did come back in many ways. Um, But it does take time. That's helpful to hear. And Dr. Spiegel, did you want to comment?
5: Uh, Yes. You're obviously a very strong person, and, and what you're doing is a very important lesson for others, that when you've got cancer, you've got to go into training. Do what your grandmother told you to do, eat well, sleep well, get plenty of exercise, help your body prepare itself to deal with the illness. But that very strength of yours can be a problem, too, because it may be that, and many people with cancer, want, they want to take charge of their lives and be in control, and it feels weak or like giving in to disease to let people know what they can do to be of help. And so I would say that the same thing that I'm recommending for people with cancer applies to their friends, and we can teach them that. Break it down into a series of specific problems or things that they can do to be of help. Not just me with cancer, I'm dealing with it, but rather you could really help me with my cancer if you did X, Y, or Z. You know, be my exercise buddy. You know, cook some food or do something. So that you're helping your friends and family see that there's a step-by-step way that they can help you deal with your illness.
1: That's excellent. Thank you. Wow, this is terrific. Our
0: next question, please, Stephanie. Our next question comes from Polly P. Your line is open. Yes, hello. Um, Hi, Polly. I I wanted to know which direction to take or go in the middle. I had a horrific botched biopsy 15 years ago. I'm a 15-year survivor, 10 with Mets. and I wasn't able to do anything legally because no one would talk. Um, I keep I have it in my mind every day for 15 years, should I be working on letting it go instead of, oh, I'll meet a writer or a movie director, (laughs) I can tell my story. And your question
1: to us? And your question, Polly?
0: Concentrate on that, or should I let it go and be peaceful?
1: Okay. Well, that's, that's an excellent question, Polly, and That's one that I think many people probably are struggling with in different ways on the call. Dr. Spiegel, would you like to start with that one?
5: Well, you know, I, I think I hear the hints of an answer in what you're saying. It, it sounds to me like what you're saying is there's a part of me that wants to let it go and just live my life, but there's a part of me that thinks that I shouldn't. And sometimes that has to do with our own sense of, you know, we'd rather feel guilty than helpless. We'd rather feel that somehow there was something we could have done, and if I replayed it differently, it would turn out differently. Now, certainly, if you or your lawyer feels that you have a strong legal case and you really want for yourself and your family to pursue it, you know, that's your right to do it. On the other hand, what I also hear you saying is that it keeps bringing you back to the beginning and it may be interfering with your enjoying the life that you have now. And if that's the case, I do think what you should do is make up your mind one way or the other, that really sit down, examine it, talk about it with people you care about, and and make up your mind and then live with that decision.
1: And I should say, probably, that we do um, a lot of the different, many different organizations that are part of, the pro- program today offer support groups and individual counseling, and that might be something that you would want to have someone really that you could talk with about personally yourself. Um, I think as Dr. Siegel said, and you can make a decision um, and then decide what you'd like to do, and um, so you have options here. And um, but you sound quite terrific in terms of just your long-term survivorship, which is really impressive. And um, and Carolyn, could I,
3: Caroline, can I just jump in there yeah, one time too? Uh, yeah. As social workers, a lot of times when people, and especially when we we deal with people who are bereaved or such and don't have the opportunity to address sometimes these egregious things that happened is creating some rich ritual. Um, definitely mind-body-spirit practices are ritualistic in the way they take care of ourselves, but um, especially what Dr. Spiegel said in terms of your desire to really letting it go, what is it doing to you? But sometimes it's very powerful to create a ritual, to let that go. I've worked with people who have many different types of ways of doing that, writing a letter to the person, um, and sending it off, or um, burning it, or something like that, buying flowers and placing them where there was some suffering or pain maybe. But there are so many creative ways, and oftentimes a mental health professional might be able to help you to create a ritual to let this go. Excellent.
1: That's excellent recommendation. Thank you. Okay, our next question.
0: Our next question comes from Mary W. Your line is open. Thank you. This is a wonderful presentation, particularly I've
1: enjoyed hearing Rick's firsthand experience. but my question is for Dr. Cohen about the study on animals and stress. I thought you said they used beta
0: blockers nor epinephrine. Have they tried this in human studies
4: that That's a very good question so uh just to be clear and very brief on what was uh, done. You know, a group of animals are exposed to stress, a group not exposed to any stress, um, and then they took a group of animals exposed to stress and gave them a beta blocker, uh, and specifically propranolol, which is very common beta blocker to help people with cardiovascular related issues. Um, and propranolol, in particular, blocks a stress hormone called norepinephrine. And there are are these receptors actually on, on cancer cells, um, and found that it really had dramatic effects on the on the on the decreasing the effects of stress both in ovarian cancer animal models, breast cancer animal models, and so there has not been, however, a formal clinical trial. In other words, taking a group of, for example, breast cancer patients and putting half of them on propranolol and half of them on beta-block uh, and on placebo and following them for a number of years. Uh, there have been what you would call more observational studies uh, where we looked at, at at MD Anderson, in fact, a number of. Uh, patients with breast cancer who were taking beta blockers and compared them to patients who weren't. And in fact, the the women who were on beta blockers had better outcomes. Now, I believe it is, is... definitely premature to be prescribing uh, beta blockers for individuals with cancer until we have a better understanding of the potential harms that could come from uh, being on beta blockers for a chronic period of time uh, and and the potential benefit. However, what it highlights, I think that's very important, is that we need to engage in practices, as we've been discussing Mm -hmm on this conference that decrease the flooding of our body with stress hormones. And some of the things that Dr. Spiegel described, uh, all of them in fact will have this beneficial effect on regulating our stress hormones. And we know that a dysregulation of stress hormones uh, can lead to worse outcomes and so our Our knee-jerk response is to tend to go for the easy fix, to just to take a pill, and we see this often with, uh, instead of fixing our diets, that we want to just take a nutritional supplement, which usually results in more harm than benefit. And instead of getting out there and exercising, taking a pill that would mimic the effects of exercise would be uh, much easier. But there really are no shortcuts, I believe. Uh, and and there's always going to be potential risks and side effects uh, of taking biologically active agents. And there are no negative risks, no negative side effects of meditation, of hypnosis, uh, of of Calming and relaxing the mind and uh, living in the moment.
1: And and I'm going to. We're about to conclude. I just want to ask Dr. Spiegel just to comment and just, um, just to kind of reiterate for everybody on the call to think about um, just common things that people can do that really can help to. Um, help use mind-body techniques in the day-to-day life and how they can incorporate that in in a way that's useful to everybody.
5: Well, I think, um, sure, that one of the worst things about stress is not just the stressor itself, as Dr. Cohen mentioned, but our reaction or or perception that we can't react to it, the sense of helplessness, which compounds the stress. So cancer presents us with a series of problems, but they're all things about which we can do something. And these mind-body techniques can be very helpful in giving you a greater sense of control over how you think about the problem, how you picture it, how your body reacts to the problem, and what you can do about it. So if it's self-hypnosis or mindfulness or breathing or other techniques, it's a matter of saying, you know what, I can get better at helping my body manage its reaction to the stress of cancer and its treatment, and I'm going to learn to do it. So even just a few minutes every few hours, uh, getting yourself to float and thinking through a problem, taking some deep breaths, can be a way of changing the structure of that roller coaster ride, giving you highs as well as lows, and helping you better manage your body's reaction to the stressors that it's facing.
1: I want to thank all of our speakers today. You've really been outstanding. This this has been really a remarkable program. This is the first uh, part one of our series, and it's it's really given lots of food for thought for everybody and ideas. And I do want to remind you all of this this is a one-hour program. I also want to thank all of you who have asked such wonderful questions that really enhanced our calls today. Now, in planning a program like this, we all recognize that you have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour. And I want to kind of let you all know about the services that you can access from all the organizations, and I also want to highlight the services you can access from Cancer Care. Um, As Rick is one of our social workers here, we have a staff of 45 master's-level trained oncology social workers, and we're here to provide a host of services to you. And our staff are able to help you to learn some of these techniques. We also offer practical assistance to people, financial assistance to people. We also offer group counseling situations and education workshops, as you see here, and um, lots of other programs as well, and fact sheets and all kinds of things that you can access. But most importantly, I don't want anyone to leave today's program feeling like you're alone. I want you to know now that you're part of the community of support, and whatever your concerns or questions are, we're simply a telephone call away. And you can call us at 1-800-813-HOPE or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And I also want to remind all of you that this is part one. So we have Part 2 on May 15th, which is Recapturing Joy and and Finding Meaning. And on June 19th, we have Changing Roles and Responsibilities for Caregivers. And on July 17th, we have Managing Post-Treatment Neuropathy. So we hope that you'll join us for all of the series, and uh, we look forward to your participating. And also, we very much look forward to your feedback on today's program because it's your feedback that will really build the program for next year and in years to come. So I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This
0: concludes the workshop. You may disconnect, and have a wonderful day.